Equity Everywhere is an eight-part series hosted by MindRocket Media Group and Anderson Learning President and CEO, Tom Jackson. Joined weekly by a variety of K-12 practitioners and experts, they engage in critical, meaningful, comprehensive conversations about equity in education. What are the key factors, variables, objectives, and considerations for the education system to acknowledge and address? Together, podcast participants will highlight, amplify, and refine best practices and solutions for ensuring education equity everywhere. In this episode, Tom Jackson will be speaking with Dr. Gladys Cruz, District Superintendent of Custar Three BOCES in Castleton, New York, and the newly elected president of the American Association of School Administrators, or AASA, speaking about the impact of equity on our English learners. Over a 30-year span, Dr. Cruz has established a distinguished career in education as a teacher and leader at the local, regional, and state levels. As district superintendent for Questar 3, Cruz is responsible for overseeing the day-to-day operations of the Castleton-based BOCES, reporting directly to the Board of Education. Along with her leadership team, Cruz provides direction to 23 local school districts and oversees the delivery of more than 275 programs and services across New York State. Cruz began her career as a teacher in Puerto Rico, and her education experience ranges from K-12 schools to universities in New York State and Puerto Rico. In addition, she worked briefly as Director of Curriculum Services for the New York State Education Department. Dr. Cruz, welcome and thank you for joining us today to discuss equity in English language learners and your new appointment as President of AASA. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for the invitation and for this a great opportunity to speak to Tom. Along my career, I've had many experiences as a uh, personally as a as an English language learner and in Puerto Rico as a Spanish language learner. I hope we can get to sharing some of those stories. And super honored to serve as the president elect of AESA and represent the superintendents in my region in New York State and across the country. We are honored to have you here. And Tom, we're happy to have you as well. Tina, I'm excited uh, for, for this one. I, I've enjoyed all of our podcasts, uh, but this one um, is particularly near and dear to my heart because, as I've said, um, this whole conversation of equity is an expansive conversation. And it's just wonderful to be able to have this conversation with Dr. Free, who will, just, I'm sure, provide um, a completely different lens as we, as we talk through this based on her experience. Uh, and based upon uh, what she has accomplished as superintendent. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. And welcome, Dr. Cruz, and congratulations on, uh, on your historic appointment. Thank you so much, Tom. So let's begin with a reflection on Tom's definition of equity. Tom, you stated equity is more about class than race. I look at equity in three pillars, scholastic equity, structural equity, and institutional equity. Dr. Cruz, does this definition of equity align with your experiences, especially when it comes to leadership and working through these equity challenges? I would uh, say yes. Um, So uh, this definition is is very comprehensive. So let's uh, see if we can unpack it a little bit. And having Tom here is just wonderful. And Tom, you interrupt me and um, you tell me if I'm not in, you know, not understanding this or going in the wrong direction. So you, you, you talk about equity more than race. And I totally agree. 
I believe equity is about opportunity for all students, right? And so it's about um, students who are English language learners and are learning a new language. It is about students with disabilities. It is about LGBTQ. It is about all a social economic status. It's about all different differences. And the importance really of addressing the needs of all of our learners in our systems. When you talk about academic or scholastic equity, you know, I have to ask, are all students offered the same educational or academic opportunities? So what are districts doing about this? For example, districts need to be looking at who is taking those AP and honors classes, right? And asking, is this enrollment in these these classes representative of our student demographics in our district? And if it is not, they need to go back and say why and how can we make it equitable? Structural equity, I think, goes deeply into the accountability of institutions and the importance of accountability, holding each other accountable for the success of all students. So I think about English language learners or I think about students with disabilities. We need to ensure that we take away all of those, all of the nuisance and all of the uh, structural impediments for them to be successful and to develop their talents and their passions to the greatest extent. Then we talk about institutional equity. And I think we could probably spend the whole morning talking about that. Um, Tom, we all know that institutional equity is far from reality. Um, We know that certain historical events have impacted institutions' core, the institution's core over time. Just yesterday, I was on a webinar that was around the Mendes versus Westminster court case. That was a precursor to the well-known Brown versus education case, right, around segregation of schools. So the question is, While many want to probably erase this history from our books, is that really giving students the opportunity of equity? Uh, History is important. You know, you just can't say, okay, this is no longer relevant and we need to just throw it in the trash and not talk about it again. It can't be that way. We need to, we need to, educators need to make sure that we understand our history and that we understand the value of history in equity in education. So I totally agree with those three pillars. And I believe that for us to have equitable systems of education, we need to look at all all of these pillars. So Tom, and push back if I took it in the wrong direction. You you took it not only in the right direction, but you added a lot of meat to those bones. And so um, I I really appreciate the way that that you really dug in on those uh, those three uh, definitions. We're absolutely on the same page there. 
you know, one of the, the things I was excited about and talking to you about is the concept of sort of equity in the way that we describe our learners. You have made a point in um, our earlier conversations about how we describe English language learners and how we tend to use language that suggests somehow that they're, they are deficient because they have to learn, you know, the English language. I think that, too, is, um, is an issue around equity. Can you sound a little bit on that for our listeners? Sure. So there's a lot of debate around the federal definition around English language learners is limited English proficient. And you think about, you know, limited English proficient, it's a a deficit model. So um, there's a lot of uh, push around English language learners, the concept of English language learners. In New York, there is a lot of push around multilingual learners. And that, that is the reality of many of the children who come from other countries to this to this country because they have a linguistic system, right, in their native language. What they don't have is the English uh, linguistic system. But, you know, I always think, I always talk about they're able to think, they have cognitive skills, they just can't do it in English. So, you know, we need to think about what do they bring you know that that the the skills and 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 gifts that they bring to this country instead of thinking about it what don't they have you know and and i think that's that's where a lot of this the narrative and the the, the opposing uh challenges around these concepts are i'm all for seeing it in the in a positive light right Right. And, and I, I think, you know, this, this concept for me, this, what this really gets to is that as the way that you, you know, really expounded upon the concept of, 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 of academic equity, right? Because if, in fact, I see a student who has, for whom English is a second language, you know, learn, having to learn English, and I assume that because they have to learn English, they can't be in honors classes, they can't be in AP classes, they, they don't have critical thinking skills. Ultimately, what I'm doing is disadvantaging that student from an academic perspective. And that seems to be pretty much a, a systemic issue um, within the, the academic infrastructure. Would you agree with that statement? I absolutely agree with that. And let me just give you my personal experience. Let me share my personal experience. So I was a child that was brought to New York when I was one. Um, my family, like many families from Puerto Rico, go back and forth, the U.S. and Puerto Rico. And so here I was, I, I grew up um, with my mom. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and um, grew up listening to Spanish, right? Um, uh, and so that was my language. When I went to school, I was... I didn't, I didn't know English. So I had to learn English. I was limited English proficient, Um, but I had Spanish. I could think I had those, I had those skills, right? You talk about critical thinking skills. I could problem solve in my, in my native language. So um, then when I was in fifth grade, my, my mother decided that we were going to Puerto Rico. So uh, she, she, 
you know, some of our of my siblings were already older. They were working. So those who were younger, boom, we went to Puerto Rico and there I was transplanted into a new system, a new education system, a new culture, a new language. So there I was limited Spanish proficient. And there I was struggling with especially um, those courses that are very um, language dependent. So Spanish language arts, social studies, right? Um, Math and science, fortunately, I was able to navigate. And it's because they're in in mathematics, you know, there was a lot of numbers um, uh, involved. And in science, there are a lot of cognates, um, uh, you know, uh, words that are the same in English and in Spanish that mean the same. I remember my uh, science and math teacher going to my Spanish and social studies teacher and saying, please don't put that grade, her fit that failing grade in her report card because I was failing both social studies and Spanish. And they said, it's the language. Look at her record. Look at her record. Look at her previous record. It is the language. If at the end of this year, She has those grades, then put it in her report card. But let's give her an opportunity because it is about language. And they were absolutely right. By the end of the year, I was passing both classes, social studies and Spanish, with a B. So, So I was fine. I graduated from sixth grade, one of two high honor students. So, you know, it, it, we need to, our educators need to understand that, that children can think, um, they have those skills, but they just don't have that linguistic repertoire. Uh, Dr. Cruz, I want to dive deeper with this because this is very, very important um, in the education space. What I want to talk about is how English learners can be overrepresented in special education classes uh, due to the lack of training in helping teachers identify students' needs and assessment when it comes to language skills. What are some ideas you can share with our listeners that could help begin to solve this very important problem? So there's two problems with this, Tina. There's the overrepresentation, and then there's also an underrepresentation. So we we have the two, we have a scale that is tipped on two sides. So our overrepresentation happens when those linguistic, the lack of those linguistic skills um, are taken for a disability, right? And I have had many experiences with parents who have come to me and they have said, here's what the school sent me. Should I sign this from a CSC committee to put my child in special education, to classify my child in special education? And I have said no. Now, these children, I knew it was the language. It was the language. It wasn't a a disability. Um, So, uh, I, I have told and 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 I have followed through with these children. These these children have graduated with high honors, with college credits. You know, they it was about language. And then there's also a underrepresentation. So some classifications are either misrepresented or misclassified, or they are not 
provided with the appropriate services and supports to be adequately classified. And let me just, uh, uh, you know, share a little bit more. So if you have a family that only speaks Spanish and they have to go to the school to participate in a committee of on special education to classify their child, their child, they don't understand what this is all about, how this is going to impact their child. And even when the, when the parents no English, you know, there's a lot of technical language and technicalities about, uh, you know, how you classify children and um, where and, and, and what classification and all of that. And they need advocates. They need to have advocates and they need to have they need to have translators. They need to have a person there who understands the language, who knows the family, who, you know, can really advocate for that family and for that child. So, you know, we see this on both sides. I, I always recommend to educators, you know, we need to establish relationships with, with our children, with our students, and with those families. And we need to learn more about where they come from and what what their background is and what what brought them to this country and you know I could have been easily mistaken for needing a classification because I didn't know the language fortunately that that didn't happen but that still is happening you know and I think I think knowledge is power right we need to ensure that our educators have the tools and understanding of all of the um, the the rules and regulations that um, that that are that that go with special education and the classifications in special education, and that identifying as a child, classifying a child in spe- for special needs, especially in the case of a child who does not know English, is more difficult, and we need to take that into account. I'd like to ask both of you um, as a follow-up to this a little bit more about what processes you believe leaders can specifically put in place to address these inequities. Um, We've talked mainly about English learners, but I think given this conversation, talking about special education as well would probably be very important. So I guess, you know, as leaders, we have the, the ability to ensure that those supports that families need um, in terms of translators, advocates, ensuring that families feel welcome. That's another piece, that families feel welcome into the school system to have these conversations. There's a lot of conversation around equity and um, diversity and, and inclusion. And that, that, that component of inclusion and how we bring the parents into the systems as partners, I really think it has to be as partners because they have such, um, they have such an impact on their children. They know their children better than anybody and they will always. Um, and so I think, you know, how we bring them into the system to to and, and feel safe and feel that their voice is is heard, um, be, and and that's what I I believe 
inclusion is about, you know, ensuring that 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 happens with the parents and that no one is marginalized, no matter where they come from, what their language is, what their educational level is, what their disability is, um, you know, et cetera. So I, I, I think that that superintendents and leaders have that authority and power to ensure that the supports needed are available to the families and to our students and to our educators. Edison Learning brings together best practices in instruction, developed over three decades of supporting schools with blended solutions designed by educators to meet students where they are and deliver the education they need and deserve. The guiding purpose behind all of Edison Learning's work is to ensure equitable access and opportunity for each and every learner. Learn more at www.edisonlearning.com. You know, Tina, as I was thinking about Dr. Cruz's answer, which I, which I loved, I was thinking about um, that, that there were really sort of two levels on which we need to deal with this. Um, you know, when we talk about equity in the context of uh, multilingual learners, we have to remember that we have folks who are coming to us from very different country, company, countries, while um, in many instances um, they are coming from Spanish-speaking countries, we have students who are coming, families who are coming, Arabic-speaking countries, Russian-speaking countries, um, you know, Chinese-speaking countries. They're all coming with very, very different cultures. And so the first thing we have to do is divorce the politics from the education, right? And so when Dr. When Dr. Cruz talks about make, creating that safe space, schools cannot be the place in which you're trying to determine whether, some, whether someone is legally in this country. From an educator's perspective, this is about making sure to meet the needs of the family and the students so that you create that rising uh, tide that lifts all boats, that zone of security for that family to be able to. So you have to divorce the politics from the education. But on a, on a more tactical level in the school, one of the tools that I really like in special education is the IEP and the IEP process which creates an individualized education plan, you know, for those students and a regime that is required to ensure that students are getting what they need. I think we need to do the same thing with our multilingual learners, that it's a process in which there's a team approach where you have an individualized plan, you know, and if you think about Dr. Cleese's story, that's fundamentally what's happened to her you know, in the sixth grade. And my God, what happened is that educators got involved. They, they determined what was right for her individual circumstance. And as a result, you know, we have a fantastic superintendent and the leader of the superintendent's association nationally. So I'd like to see that when um, multilingual learners are coming in, that there is this individualized plan which is put together which helps you understand that what you've got is the language deficiency and what's the nature of that deficiency. Many people assume that because I come from a Spanish-speaking country that I speak Spanish correctly, you know, or because I come from a Russian-speaking country, I speak Russian correctly. And in most instances, just as with English, I'm really speaking a colloquial version, you know, and so the bridge I have to build from my native language to English may be different based upon my village, based upon my family culture, based upon all these other things. 
And if my family isn't feeling comfortable and safe, if my family isn't part of the process, it's going to be difficult to determine how I build that bridge as an educator. So I'd like to see the development of a more individualized, you know, plan, multilingual plan for that student that determines, that pulls the family into the process, that pulls the team of educators around that student, that helps them uh, become much more part of the, the education system, identify where the true strengths and weaknesses are, and I bet you will create more Gloria Cruises than not from that process. Tom, I love that. And um, let me just um, uh, build on that because back in the 80s, right, I was teaching and you, some of you, you may not remember something called Chapter One, right, which now is Title One. And I had... I was an English teacher in Puerto Rico, and I had to have, I, I had a individual education plan for all of my children, okay? And I had to have short-term goals and long-term goals, and I had to monitor that plan with every child. I'm, I believe every child should have an educational learning plan because Learning should be personalized for every child. Every child learns differently, has different needs. So that IEP concept, every child should have a, a, a personalized uh, learning plan that is directly tied to their linguistic, academic, personal needs. Absolutely. I, 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 can't, I couldn't have said that, said that better. And I would say let's wrap in because we know that um, most of the time we're dealing with a lot of urban areas, but the Superintendents Association did a great report a few years back, you know, on uh, rural education, you know, uh, which indicated that, you know, more than 75% of this country geographically is rural, right? You know, and so uh, taking into account the, the social aspect of our of what our kids are going through as well. Like that is why I really agree with it. Our kids' lives, our students' lives, don't begin and end in the classroom, right? And how often, as an educator, have you seen where what is happening outside the classroom is really impacting what is happening into it? I mean, that that was the genesis, frankly, you know, of um, you know the free lunch program. You know, recognizing that. You know, no matter how, you know, smart a student is, you know, a growling stomach, you know, will drown out algebra any day, <laughs> you know, um, and drown out the, the tactics of the most effective teachers. So you've got the free lunch program. So we really have to understand how do we take in account the context of that student, you know, and build it in as part of educating or, or helping that student achieve um, her academic best. Absolutely. You know, I think back, you know, um, so I, you know, my story of going back and forth between the two systems and um, I had uh, the opportunity um, and I interviewed my mom. I was working with two internationally known authors, Alma Florada and Isabel Campoy, and I was doing this Authors in the Classroom uh, project across the state of New York with teachers and educators. And, you know, it was about writing your story and um, authoring your, your, your story, where you come from, who you are. And I interviewed my mom and I, I asked her, why did we come to the U.S., right? 
of course, she's answered, well, to look for a better life. You're, you're, you know, things were difficult in Puerto Rico. Um, uh, wages were very low. We were very poor and we were looking for a better life for all of us. And um, then I asked, so what, and one of the questions I asked her was, what, what did you believe your role was in education? Because my mom and my dad never went to school for any of my activities. So I, I said, so what, what was your role? What do you believe your role was? And she said, my role was to get you up in the morning, feed you, dress you, ha- you know, groom you, and send you to school. The education was the school's responsibility. And I said, and I said, you know, how many of our families still today believe that this is the case? And, 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 you know, it's a mental model. You know, you talked about different groups. In some of these countries, the educator is like, you know, way up high, uh, seen as, as El Maestro, you know, and um, they, and, and that is that, here, there's an expectation that that parents will be a part of the education of their children and will be a part of completing their homework and will be part of the teaching and will be so. So, you know, I think I think part of the 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 problem is that expectation and the mental models and paradigms within which different cultures live. And, you know, the other piece that I think is important to to point out is that individuals and families and children come here for different reasons. You know, right now we have a war in Ukraine and Russia. We're going to, we're seeing a lot of Ukrainians flee, you know, flee, flee Ukraine. Well, that's a different reason from, you know, my family coming here looking for better, better opportunities and employment. And so, so the, all of those things have, have really take a toll on children and they need to be taken into account. I, I see a theme emerging today in our conversation uh, that you really cannot talk about equity without talking about the individual talking about their past, talking about their, where they are today and their futures. And when you take all of that into account, and I love this idea of individualized plans for all students because everyone's coming from a different family, a different background. It's incredible. I want to bring it up a bit. Um, I'm talking to two incredible leaders in education and speak to it from the leadership side. And with that said, how can leaders keep themselves accountable for their own goals in equity? Well, I think part of that has to do with being intentional. We know that we've always said in education, what gets assessed gets taught, right? So if we're true about equity, we need to have we need to have goals in black and white, and then we need to have accountability measures in black and black and white, and we need to monitor those goals. I think people are struggling with some of this because I think people, some people, may not know even where to start. 
But if you think about it, um, you can start an interview. You know, when you interview uh, candidates to join your educational system, you can ask them, what does equity mean to you? And how does that impact the children that we serve? You know, I think that will give us some insights into what that those individuals who are applying for positions are bringing to the table. Um, so I, I, I think it has to be intentional. You just can't let it to chance. And I know we're in a political time where everything is kind of lumped in together with something called CRT that has nothing to do with any of this. Um, and uh, but it's as leaders, it is our responsibility to clarify what these things mean in our systems. Tom, do you have anything yeah, I, I, again, yeah, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I can't agree more with what uh, Dr. Cruz just said. Um, you know, the, um, the adage here is, um, you know, without a vision, the people perish, you know, and so the leader really has to set the vision. And then from that vision, identify the specific goals and tactics that form the accountability uh, system forward, including um, what resources, you know, if I'm really trying to make sure that I've created a system of equity, what resources am I willing to allocate uh, to make this happen? What resources in terms of financial resources? What resources in terms of human capital am I willing to put to it? You know, if I know uh, that, um, you know, my greatest challenges are one with equity, and this is about being not only transparent to others, but transparent to yourself. You know, uh, most leaders know where their, 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 their pain points are with equity. You know, what am I really doing about that? What, are, you know, what, what, what do those facilities look like where I have the greatest challenges? You know, what does that staffing model look like where I have the greatest challenges? Have I built in equity and an accountability system into the performance review process of teachers, you know, and of principals? Um, because most, more often than not, the, the, you know, as goes the principal, as goes the school. So, you know, do I have, um, you know, those principles that are consistent with my vision of equity? Do I have them replete throughout all of the accountability measures, all the decision, major decision markers that I make in my school system, you know, that tells me then um, that I'm genuinely concerned about it. If all I did is, uh, is sort of articulate a vision statement, but it doesn't tie to my goals and it doesn't come down to my tactics and it's not showing up in the performance measures, you know, um, then I'm, I'm more sounding brass and English simple. It really is not real. I love all of this. It's so good. It's so important too. And speaking of important, I want to move um, into the soon to be future for you, Dr. Cruz. Again, congratulations on your appointment as president of AASA. And what I want to ask you is, have you thought about a few specific objectives you would like to accomplish uh, during your tenure? I, I had the privilege of uh, participating in a commission um, that created a report. Um, it's uh, the report is titled Student-Centered, Equity-Focused, Future-Driven Education. The report can be found on the AASA website, Education 2025 Initiative. It has specific 
recommendations. And it is about transforming our systems to serve all learners. It, it came about, ASA brought a group of, of, uh, of thought leaders, business partners, entrepreneurs, uh, educators together during the pandemic. And, you know, I think the, the, the whole, the pandemic really disrupted education in a way that we, we never thought that we were going to do the things we did in such short order. I mean, how many years have we been trying to integrate technology into the into education P12? Um, and it it was around, but it was never well, you know, the pandemic forced us to use technology to educate our children for a part of the uh, 1920 school year. There was no way around it. We had to do it. Um, so um, uh, it, it it really forced us to, to areas that we weren't even thinking we were going. So, but the, but the pandemic also brought about a lot of inequities to light, right? And if, if we don't, take this opportunity that the pandemic forced us into to change and transform our systems to really serve all children, because it's clear the system we, we had wasn't serving all children, all children. So if we don't take this opportunity, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I don't think there'll be an op- another opportunity, at least in my lifetime. So it's important that we take what we've learned and we redefine our systems, that we restructure our systems, that we, we, we really try to figure out how we can make these systems be equity focused, be student centered um, and be future driven. Because the reality is, you know, if you go into schools today and you look at many of the schools 100 years ago, they look the same. You know, and the courses, you know, I always talk about the the committee of 10, um, this committee of 10 uh, scholars that came together that really, they were tasked with, with, um, you know, what should the coursework for high schools be? Well, that was in the 1800s. And that, in those courses, if you'll go back to that, to that, the courses that the committee of 10 stipulated for high schools way back then, those are still in the high schools today and everything is still siloed. So if we don't take this opportunity to really step out of the box and change things, we will have missed the opportunity of a lifetime. One of our core values in Questar 3 is innovation. So we're always trying to push the envelope and step outside the box and do things a little different. Um, we we have a comprehensive high school, um, regional high school, that is fully project-based learning, where we have partnerships with businesses and where um, students do internships. They take time and spend time in, in exploring careers. Um, and they they everything is working with business partners. They they are 
solving problems. Sometimes businesses come to them and say, here's the, some problems that we need to solve. And they give them to the students and they let the students figure out a solution. And then panels of experts um, in those areas come and evaluate those, those presentations done by students. You know, we need to think out of the box and, and, and you know, uh, so, and we need to think of how students can, you know, access college, especially disenfranchised children. Um, and so we, we are also implementing these, we have two schools um, that we're implementing. We just uh, launched a, a high school, another comprehensive uh, regional high school on a college campus, on a two-year co- two college campus where students can go into different, you know, different careers. And we work very closely with the, with the college. Um, so students leave with an associate's degree or many credits towards an associate's degree so they can, you know, they have a head start. So, you know, one of the things I, I know that I will be supporting is that, is that, is those, um, recommendations and right and and they're not just it's not just a report that's out there that is on a website that is on a shelf there are over there are approximately 130 school systems engaged in this work actively and we come together and we're sharing what we're doing there's a summer summit this this year in June where a lot of our systems will come together and we'll be able to collaborate i think we need to push, we need to push that thinking and we need to push the thinking of our, of our systems beyond what was. We can't, you know, I still hear people going back, thinking, talking about going back to what was. We're never going to go back to what was. We can't. We have to move forward and we have to Take what we've learned over the past two years and incorporate it into into our systems. You know, how beautiful is it that here we are in in different states and we're having this great conversation through technology? We've been able to do that and use those technologies to do many events across the nation during the past two years. Why would we throw that away? I don't see why. So um, I definitely think that will be one of uh, the initiatives that I will support. I was involved with it from the from the um, inception, and I I truly believe that we need to transform our systems. I I love that, and we will be sure to link the report in our show notes because I think it's going to be very important to include. And along those same lines, Tom. Can you please share how Edison Learning is helping educational institutions provide resources or coaching to influence change through powerful leadership uh, for the English learners uh, population? Yeah, I, I, uh, absolutely. And uh, let me first say that um, you know I, I did get a chance to uh, not read the, um, as thoroughly as I'd like to glance at that report. Um, and uh, it is powerful. It, I, I recommend it, highly recommend it. Um, you know, it's full, it's packed full with uh, strategies and tactics. Um, but what I really like is, you know, the reasoning, the why, you know, and the imperative and the sense of urgency that that report would create. So um, a job well done. And I'm, I'm very glad to hear, Dr. Cruz, that in your tenure that you're going to really sort of bring life to that and anything that we can do you know, as Edison Learning to help support you in that, you know, we're at, we're, we're here. 
um, one of the things that we have done um, is to uh, make sure uh, that as we're supporting our uh, partners, our superintendents, um, that we have bundled our forces in a way uh, that support their strategic vision for uh, driving equity. All of our courses are supported by Tech Help. Um, and as a result, what we can do is, you know, students can have, um, you know, their course uh, in any language uh, that uh, they prefer. If they're Chinese, if they're, if they're uh, needed uh, in Japanese, if they need it in Spanish, if they need it in Russian, what have you. But what we, what we decided was that we were not going to change the nature of the course itself. And this goes to the point that Dr. Cruz was making before. You know, we have found to her in support of her point that once they hear it in their language, they perform at, at or better uh, than, uh, than um, English, uh, uh, traditional English language learners. We normalize, we take out the factor of language uh, uh, as a, quote, deficit, close quote. Uh, and make sure that there, we create this equal, the level playing field in studying our course, whether it's, you know, whether they're studying uh, Moby Dick, you know, or the Crucible, uh, or they're um, working through a physics problem, an advanced physics problem. Um, we make sure with, uh, with uh, the, the, the technology, that technology becomes an equalizer in that regard. Um, secondly, we have launched um, uh, an Equity Everywhere pilot in which um, we are allowing school districts to identify uh, particular classrooms um, to take our courses and help us uh, to make sure that we, uh, we've really tagged into the outcome uh, where there are challenges, right? And so um, it's free to the uh, schools or, or school systems that participate. But it allows us to really um, gather data to help us understand how do we teach in this new paradigm? How do students learn in this new paradigm? Our model is uh, very much a blended synchronous model because we believe that most students don't learn by simply looking at a computer. We have um, a pool of about 75 teachers who are cross-certified in multiple states who provide in-time, on-time intervention to students uh, live, again, making sure that you're focusing on competency and mastery, uh, but also making sure that you normalize it for, uh, for language. So we catch the glorious green sixth grader with regular uh, office hours. She can get tutoring help. She can get help tutoring help from certified, highly qualified teachers. Um, she can be engaged um, at her level. They can identify on-time, in-time interventions. Uh, alternative questions and accommodations that the student might need, regardless of whether they're in an IEP. But understanding, just as Dr. Cruz has pointed out, that, you know, students, all students learn in different ways. So we're really, truly individualizing that that learning. So from our perspective, we, we're sort of incorporating a lot in our system of what uh, Dr. Cruz and her colleagues have uh, have identified. Wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, Dr. Cruz, do you have any final parting words as we look forward to what education has to bring to us in the 2020s and beyond? So I guess, I guess you know, I invite all the listeners and I invite all the leaders of, of, of systems um, to reflect on a couple of things. 
our uh, teaching staff is not representative of our student population. Our student population has become very diverse and the teaching staff hasn't kept up with that. So as leaders, we need to do something about that. Um, moving up the ranks, um, same thing happens with principals and district leaders. They're not representative of of the uh, student population. And then in terms of the superintendency, that is even less represented. And we have at the uh, national level, it's around between um, about 6% superintendents of color for our systems of education. That is not okay. So I ask all of you leaders who are listening to please Think about that and think about equity and what equity really means in terms of these positions and how we can ensure that our systems truly reflect our student population because it does make a difference. Absolutely. On that, I'd like to thank both of you, Tom and Dr. Cruz, for your time and for sharing your stories and vision around leadership and equity with us on the Equity Everywhere podcast. Thank you all for your time and for sharing your vision and personal stories. It is individuals like you that help make the little shifts that impact needed change in the education community. If you or anyone has ideas or thoughts on this podcast, please join the discussion on Twitter at Edison Learning and reference the hashtag Equity Everywhere. Thank you for listening and we invite you to join us on our next episode of Equity Everywhere.